Chapter 15, Turning the World Right Side Up Adam and Eve's descent into sin and judgment brought about a corrupt world. While the image of God was not destroyed by the fall, the likeness of God was certainly defaced. Now man reflects the attributes of the fallen Adam. Deception and death followed the sin of man. A time came when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 The Old Testament is the story of a series of similar judgments. Each time God recreated the world, men fell again. God came to dwell with Israel in the wilderness as he had dwelt with Adam in the garden. But Israel refused to obey, Numbers 14. God enabled Israel to conquer the land, Joshua, but Israel quickly fell, Judges. God established his victorious anointed in Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 10, but David's heart led him astray, 2 Samuel 11. Solomon built a glorious temple, 1 Kings 6, but half of the kingdom was ultimately torn from him, 1 Kings 11:29-40. Jesus' Renewal of this World Jesus again renewed all things, but unlike the recreations of the Old Testament, the recreation of the world by Jesus is irreversible. The resurrection of Christ is the definitive renewal of all things. Even those outside the Christian tradition understood the implication of Jesus' work. These men who have upset the world have come here also. Acts 17.6 God, through his Holy Spirit, transforms individuals. But there are societal and global ramifications of the work of Christ just as there were global ramifications of the work of Adam. Genesis 3.14-24 Prior to Jesus' finished work, Israel was confined to a small piece of real estate. Jesus' mission gave a worldwide dimension to the gospel. He came to save the world, John 3.16. The Apostle Paul had plans to go on to Spain, no longer bound by the confines of one nation. Romans 15.24-28 The world has changed. It has been transformed, and yet it is still in the process of transformation. As we have seen in the chapters on the kingdom, the definitive renewal must be followed by progressive renewal. Each new generation must appropriate for itself the benefits of Christ's work. Each new generation is faced with personal and cultural crises brought on by sin. The history of Western civilization is evidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ does make a difference both personally and culturally. For example, modern science developed in the Christian West. But the people of God often forget their first love, Revelation 2.4, as Israel did after the death of Joshua. While God's blessings were once regarded as gifts, they come to be seen solely as the products of man. As is too often the case, the people of God forget the working relationship between covenant faithfulness and external blessings that flow from the hand of God. Instead, they begin to say, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, Deuteronomy 8.17. God eventually brings them to their senses, showing them that he alone is the one who gives us power to make wealth and anything else. Verses 18, compare Daniel 4.28-37. through 37. Men are still sinners. Does this mean that nothing can be done to change our world? Is God too weak and the devil too strong? Henry Van Til writes, To say that culture is now impossible in a sin-sick world is to shortchange God, who as ruler of heaven and earth and the determiner of man's destiny is causing his purposes to be fulfilled even through man's rebellion, so that the wrath of man is praising God. Psalm 76.10 it is true, of course, that man in his cultural striving will not reach unto the perfect man in a perfect world while existing in the state of sin. This would be utopianism. 
of which man as a rebel has been guilty repeatedly. Of this, history gives us a long record, as witness Plato's Republic, Moore's Utopia, Bacon's New Atlas, Rousseau's Return to Nature, St. Simeon's Social Christianity, Marx's Classless Society, and to mention no more, Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984. How should the Christian respond to man's propensity to sin? There are at least two ways. First, the church can respond by saying this is the end of all things. We should look for the imminent and final judgment of God. Evil has triumphed over good. Only the physical presence of Jesus Christ can accomplish the task of societal reconstruction. Second, we can repent of our sins, bow in humble submission before the God who made us, and recommit ourselves to covenant faithfulness. There is certainly truth in the response of judgment. God is not pleased with rebellion. But is it a judgment unto destruction, damnation, or a judgment unto restoration, resurrection? The history of the world, and especially the history of Israel, shows that judgment is unto restoration for covenant nations. As we shall see, God even holds the door open for the restoration of the church of Laodicea. Israel as our example. God has not left his church without a source of encouragement and instruction. All of the Bible is God's word to us. All scripture, including the Old Testament, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Paul had in mind the Old Testament when he penned these words. We can learn best by avoiding Israel's mistakes. Now these things happened to them, the Israelites in the wilderness, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10:11. After the death of Joshua and the generation under his leadership, the moral climate in Israel changed. The people self-consciously rejected Jehovah and served Baal and the Ashtoreth, gods that were not gods. Judges 2:13. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. 2, 10-12. Did God forsake them utterly? No. First, God gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. Verse 14. Second, he sold them into the hands of their enemies, verse 14. Third, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, verse 16. Fourth, the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed and afflicted them, verse 18. Fifth, when the judge died, the entire cycle repeated itself, verse 19. But in all of this, God did not forsake his people. God raised up another judge each time Israel forsook him. Even when God's patience wore thin, he still did not destroy his people. During the 70 years of captivity, God gave Israel hope that he would restore them to the land when the period of the judgment was complete. The circumstances in Jeremiah's day were little different from the period of the judges. You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart, without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land, into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I shall grant you no favor. Jeremiah 16, 12-14 The prophets promised that even through judgment God would bring restoration. 
for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers, Jeremiah 16.15. Even in the midst of captivity, judgment, and hopelessness, God was there to give them a future and a hope, 29.11. Though Israel was under God's judgment, Israel's enemies would be destroyed with no promise of restoration. Egypt, Jeremiah 46, Philistia, 47, Moab, 48, Ammon, 49, Kedar and Hazar, 49, 28-33, Elam, 49, 34-39, and Babylon, 50-51. God dramatized Israel's restoration by telling Jeremiah to buy land that would soon be in the hands of the Babylonians, 32, 24-44. God promised to restore Israel's fortunes. It was hard for them to believe. In fact, common sense told them that restoration was hopeless. Seventy years is a long time. Few people, if any, who initially went into captivity returned to see restoration. But Israel was brought back from exile as God had promised to Jeremiah, Ezra 1, 1 1-4. But you might be saying at this point, well, these are promises to Israel, God's special people. This special relationship does not exist between God and his church. In the midst of Jeremiah's warning of judgment and promise of restoration, he mentions God's new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31.31 Is this promise yet to be fulfilled? Not according to the book of Hebrews. The new covenant began when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Acts 2.9-11 The church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, partakes of the glories and blessings of the new covenant, Hebrews 8, 7-13. We have a better covenant, Hebrews 8, 6. A better high priest, 8, 1. A more excellent ministry, 8, 6. And a better sacrifice, 9, 1-18. Therefore, the restoration process is multiplied under the better and renewed covenant. If God's people were restored under a covenant that is now obsolete, then God will restore us in greater measure under a covenant that is better. Keep in mind that God purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20:28. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her, Ephesians 5:25. Gentiles are no longer strangers to the covenant of promise, 2:12. Gentile believers have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. There are no longer two men, but one new man in Christ, a man consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Verse 15. God reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 16. So then, you, Gentiles, 2.11, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles, who were Jews, and prophets, who were Jews, Christ Jesus himself, who was a Jew, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19-22 Why do some say that restoration cannot come today under a better covenant? David Wilkerson states that America will not repent. How does he know? God always leaves room for repentance. Repentance is always offered to a society. Even a cursory study of Americans' history will show that America is a covenant nation. Of course, the humanists are trying to deny this, but the evidence is unmistakable. God, if he works like he has done in the past, will leave room for repentance. The church is not perfect. Wilkerson identifies many evils within the church that must be expunged. But this is the repentance process. This is what the grace of God is all about. 
We deny the gospel if we say that America or any other nation will not repent. God is sovereign. Even Jonah had doubts about Nineveh. God's grace proved him wrong. The Laodicean Lie One of the pillars of support for the belief that we are indeed living in the last days is Jesus' description of the Laodicean church in Revelation 314 14-22. The argument goes something like this. The seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3 describe the church throughout history. The church of Laodicea describes the generation of Christians just before Jesus returns to rapture his church. It describes a period of indifference to the things of God. Now, since this is all prophesied in the Bible, there is really nothing that can be done to affect long-term cultural change. The church is lukewarm, Revelation 3.16, good for nothing except to be spit out of God's mouth. How could this church impact the world when it is miserable and poor and blind and naked? Verse 17. Those who deny this interpretation are said to spiritualize everything having to do with Christ's soon return. This is an odd accusation in light of the seven ages interpretation of the seven churches described in Revelation 2 and 3. As we will see, there is nothing that even hints at the seven churches being seven ages throughout church history. This interpretation must be read into Revelation 2 and 3. Do the seven churches in Asia represent seven stages in church history? First, there is certainly nothing in the book of Revelation that would lead one to think so. One would expect some indication that Jesus was describing seven ages of the church and not just seven churches in Asia Minor. For those who hold to a literal interpretation of scripture, seven churches would seem to mean seven churches and not seven ages. Second, each church is mentioned in a specific geographical area. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There is no mention of ages. In fact, John is to write in a book what he sees and is to send it to the seven churches, 1-1. Third, in the first chapter of Revelation, John tells us, For the time is near, 1-3. What he is about to see must shortly take place, 1-1. The view that these churches extend over 2,000 years of church history contradicts these very clear passages that whatever is about to happen will happen in a short time frame. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22:20. 20. William Hendrickson comments on the seven churches, seven ages view in his critically acclaimed commentary on the book of Revelation. The notion that these seven churches describe seven successive periods of church history hardly needs refutation. To say nothing about the almost humorous, if it were not so deplorable, exegesis which, for example, makes the church at Sardis, which is dead, refer to the glorious age of the Reformation, it should be clear to every student of the Bible that there is not one atom of evidence in all the sacred writings which in any way corroborates this thoroughly arbitrary method of cutting up the history of the church and assigning the resulting pieces to the respective epistles of Revelation 2 and 3. But there is a further problem with the seven ages interpretation. How do we know when the period of the Laodicean church begins? Some aspect of the church in nearly every generation can be described in some measure as lukewarm, Revelation 3.16. If it refers just to a few years prior to the rapture, that's one thing. But if it's made to apply to a long period of time, then the church could be immobilized for centuries because of prophetic miscalculation. 
David Wilkerson and others used the Laodicean church to describe conditions in the church as it exists now. For them, the rapture is just around the corner, but other prophetic teachers have taught the same thing, applying the characteristics of the Laodicean church to their generation. Why are there no such saints in Scotland now? Because their wine is mingled with water, their food is debased, it will nourish men no longer, but dwarflings. O Scotland, O Scotland, how I groan over thee, thou and thy children, and thy poverty-stricken church, thy Humes are thy Knoxes, thy Thompsons are thy Melvilles, thy public diners are thy sacraments, and the speeches which attend them are the menstruations of their idol. And the misfortune is that the scale is falling everywhere in proportion, ministers and people, cities and lonely places, so that it is like going into the Shetland Islands, where though you have the same plants, they are all dwarfed, and the very animals dwarfed, and the men also. How well the state of our church, nay, of the Christian church in general, is described by the account of the Laodicean church. It almost tempts me to think that these seven churches are emblems of the seven ages of the Christian church, to the last of which men are now arrived. Irving wrote these words in the 1830s, over 150 years ago. Taking David Wilkerson's description of today's church with that of Irving's description of the church in his day, we end up with an impossible situation. Any hope for societal reform is dashed to pieces, since the Laodicean church, as Irving and Wilkerson maintain, is an unrepentant church ripe for imminent judgment. Those expecting an imminent judgment have been waiting since Irving's time. The only thing left for the church to do is wait. All hope is lost for earthly transformation. Irving's description of the future fueled the fire of prophetic speculation. Prophetic speculation was rampant in Irving's day, as it is in our day. The nearness of judgment was the watchword. Robert Baxter, a disciple of Irving, used the Laodicean church as the last day's church to his advantage on January 14, 1832, to predict that the rapture would occur in 1,260 days, June 27, 1835. Count the days, 1,003 score and 200, 1,260, the days appointed for a testimony, at the end of which the saints of the Lord should go up to meet the Lord in the air. Baxter made further predictions until the Irvingite movement believed the return of Christ would probably take place no later than 1835 or 1836. Needless to say, they were mistaken. The seven churches, seven ages interpretation does not stand up to good Bible interpretation. It is an arbitrary way to divide history, and there is no warrant in Scripture to make such a division. Moreover, it can hinder many people from leading full Christian lives. It can immobilize the church from being the salt and light that this sin-darkened world needs. But let's grant for a moment that Irving and Wilkerson are correct in their seven churches, seven ages interpretation. There is nothing in the description of the Laodicean church that closes the door to repentance and full restoration. In fact, Jesus stands at the door knocking, offering to dine with those who have forsaken him. Revelation 3.20 This is not an abandoned church. Restoration is found in the life-transforming effects of the gospel and the mercy and grace that God showers on his church, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20.28 20, God loves this lukewarm church enough to reprove and to discipline it. Revelation 3.19 For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 6-8, 11-11. We look for the discipline of God, for we are legitimate children, heirs according to the promise, Romans 8, 15-17. If there are false doctrines, immorality, coldness, and false pride found in the church, then God will root them out, because he loves his church. David Wilkerson is right in his assessment of the church. But this does not mean that final judgment is close at hand. He has misinterpreted the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, and he has unwittingly forsaken the mercy, grace, love, and patience of God. Methods of Change The secularists trust in the inherent goodness of man and the inevitability of progress that resides in the evolutionary dogma to bring about change. These two approaches break down into further variations. Brian R. Wilson classifies seven types of salvationists in his book, Magic and the Millennium. The conversionist believes that only by changing men can the world be changed. The revolutionist is convinced that only the destruction of the world, and usually he means the present social order, will suffice to save men. A third response is to withdraw from the world, since it is so helplessly evil. The introversionist may do this as an individual or as a member of a community. The manipulationist response consists basically of applying religious techniques which allow men to see the world differently and explain evil away. A similar but narrower type of response is the thaumaturgical. Relief from present ills is sought by means of magic. Such salvation is personal and local, and does not as a rule call for any elaborate doctrine. Another response, the reformist, is close to the position of secular social reformers, and in fact differs only in positing divine guidance. The intention is to amend the world gradually in the light of supernaturally given insights. Lastly, there is the utopian response, in which men seek to construct a perfect society, free from evil. As can be seen, the Christian position is conversionist. People must change if there is to be any effective change in the broader society. Any Christian who rejects this fundamental point misses the substance of the gospel. Optimism is a rejuvenating emotion. The belief that life can change spurs us all on. The hopeless and disenfranchised, when given a ray of hope, can be lifted out of the pit of despair. A comparable, restless certainty that, however good or bad experience is, it can be better, routinely infects even the most thoroughgoing secularism. But only the Christian has the elements of real optimism, because only the Christian has the life-transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to make dead men and women live. From the inside out. The reformation of the world should result from the reformation of the individual. A look at personal salvation will show the relationship between the individual and the world. What happens when a sinner comes to Christ? The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Now does this verse teach perfectionism? Is the new Christian without sin? He's not perfect and he never will be perfect in this life. He must mature in the faith. In fact, this is often what the Bible means when a man is called perfect. Job 1.1, authorized version. A perfect man is a mature man, but Christians are not perfect in the sense that we usually mean. Christians are not sinless, yet we still describe a believer as a Christian. If his Christianity is real, 
then we should expect, for example, his family to receive the benefits of his new life in Christ. His family is then described as Christian. A businessman in his business would be described as Christian if it reflected Christian business practices. Now, if there are millions of Christians in a society, each making an impact for Christ in family, church, and community, then why is it impossible to believe that the society could be described as Christian? Would this be a perfect society? No. Even Christians are sinners. Would there still be the need for civil government, the police, and the threat of punishment? Yes, but there would be fewer incidents of crime in such a community. In fact, there are still pockets of righteousness in our country today. The reality of a Christian civilization is only a remnant, however. Is it possible that the gospel we preach is anemic? Could it be that our gospel does not go far enough? Many evangelists who believe that we cannot build a Christian civilization preach a gospel that has little or no cultural relevance. Thus, their preaching against a Christian civilization becomes self-fulfilling. For them, the gospel only has personal significance. Yet, even Jimmy Swaggart, who rightly stresses the gospel's internal significance in salvation, has to say that there is also external benefit, though only for the believer. He makes his point when he writes that his worldwide preaching of the gospel has been tremendously productive. However, you see, it hasn't been our responsibility to reform the world, but to win souls to him. What I, and every other preacher of the gospel, am doing will make the world better, but only for those individuals who give their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by so doing become the salt of the earth. For the most part, we agree with Reverend Swaggart. His emphasis on the gospel is just where it ought to be. Evangelism must come first in any attempt to change anybody or anything. Apart from changed lives, no lasting external changes are forthcoming. Without changed lives, there will not be a changed society. But the gospel has a benefit for those who do not come under its immediate sway. The world is blessed when the Christian is blessed. This was God's promise to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 2-3. We are Abraham's spiritual descendants, and thus we reap the benefits of those initial gospel promises to him. Romans 4, 9-25, 9-6-9 As we prosper, that is, as we are blessed by God, the world is blessed. The history of Western civilization attests to it. Being salt and light to the world is a blessing to the world. Surely it's a temporal blessing, but it's a blessing nevertheless. So then, the Christian's new life in Christ should benefit the world. If the world is decaying, then it is due to the refusal of Christians to see their new life in Christ as a blessing to the world. But Reverend Swaggart is inconsistent at one point. He tells us that the world is only made better for those who give their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by so doing, become the salt of the earth. What about orphanages, charities, homes for unwed mothers, rescue missions, and Christian schools? Do these ministries benefit believers only? Certainly not. In most cases, they're established to help unbelievers. Does all this work make the world better for non-Christians? Of course. Isn't this the meaning of being the salt of the earth? What is our ultimate goal in all these activities? We do these good works to point the lost to Jesus Christ. Moreover, Reverend Swaggart is apparently unaware of the great tradition of social reform within evangelical Christianity. Social reform and evangelism went hand in hand in the 19th century. John Stott writes about Charles Finney's view on social reform. 
Social involvement was both the child of evangelical religion and the twin sister of evangelism. This is clearly seen in Charles G. Finney, who is best known as the lawyer-turned-evangelist and author of Lectures on Revivals of Religion, 1835. Through his preaching of the gospel, large numbers were brought to faith in Christ. What is not so well known is that he was concerned for reforms as well as revivals. He was convinced, as Donald W. Dayton has shown in his Discovering an Evangelical Heritage, both that the gospel releases a mighty impulse towards social reform, and that the church's neglect of social reform grieved the Holy Spirit and hindered revival. It is astonishing to read Finney's statement in his 23rd lecture on revival that, the great business of the church is to reform the world. The Church of Jesus Christ was originally organized to be a body of reformers. The very profession of Christianity implies the profession and virtually an oath to do all that can be done for the universal reformation of the world. The negative reaction to social reform comes from secularized attempts to do what only the gospel can do. This reaction is legitimate, but it should not deter Christians from being truly evangelical in their attempts at reform. Why should we abandon an area of legitimate biblical concern just because humanists have perverted our methods and goals? Christians should strive to be a light on a hill to unbelievers. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this law which I am setting before you today? Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 through 8. The statutes and laws that God has given to his people are the standards of reform. Obedience to the law is the good works that those outside of Christ are to see. Matthew 5:16. Justification, Sanctification, and Regeneration One helpful way to look at the relationship between personal renewal and societal renewal and reformation is to study the biblical doctrines of justification, regeneration, and sanctification. When we are united to Christ by faith, we receive these blessings. Christ himself is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our new life. 1 Corinthians 1.30, John 1, 1.4, 5.26, 11.25, 14.6. And in him we have righteousness, holiness, and life. Those who believe that societal transformation is impossible concentrate more on regeneration of individuals than on social activism. Jimmy Swagger writes that it hasn't been our responsibility to reform the world but to win souls to him. Others concentrate on justification to the exclusion of sanctification. Let's briefly note the differences and the implications for social transformation. Regeneration is the technical theological term for the new birth. A person is regenerated when he is born again. Jesus made clear to Nicodemus that the new birth is essential to entering the kingdom. You must be born again, John 3.3. 3. Often, however, Christians are so concerned with being born again that they neglect the need for growth in grace and maturity, what the Bible calls sanctification. Justification means that God has declared the sinner righteous when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. Justification is a legal declaration made by God, whereby God declares the guilty sinner not guilty on the merits of Jesus Christ. But justification is more than the forgiveness of sin. 
God not only forgives the guilty of sin, he actually imputes or attributes a positive righteousness to the believing, repentant sinner. Thus, God no longer sees a man in his sin, but Jesus in his righteousness. Justification puts the sinner in a right relationship with God. But this judicial act by itself deals only with one part of man's sinfulness. Justification deals with the guilt of sin, but it does not change the sinner's disposition to sin. Justification only puts him in a right standing legally before God. This is a central aspect of salvation. As James Buchanan says, guilt cannot be extinguished by repentance or even by regeneration, for while these may improve or renew our character, a divine sentence of condemnation can only be reversed by a divine act of remission. But justification is not all there is to the gospel message, nor is regeneration the entire gospel. We do not want to minimize the importance of justification. Without justification, there is no gospel. The justified sinner is no longer condemned by God. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Romans 8.33 This is a crucial point, nor do we wish to minimize the importance of regeneration. The point is that the Christian life is just that, a life. It is not merely a one-time event of getting saved. Much of the church today is theologically immature. The basics of the Christian faith are known, but there is little else in their storehouse of theological knowledge. There is no progress in godliness. In fact, the writer to the Hebrew Christian says an astonishing thing. He tells his readers to leave the elementary teachings about the Christ behind, Hebrews 6.1. They are to press on to maturity. The foundation has been laid. It's time to build on it. God does more than justify us. His action is not only judicial and external, it is also recreative and internal. God gives us new life in union with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, through regeneration, brings the dead sinner to life. Prior to regeneration, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, 5. The results are comprehensive in their effect on the once dead sinner. He is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and a new man, Ephesians 4.24. He has a new life, Ephesians 2.1-5, and a renewed mind, Romans 12.2. Regeneration is the new birth and makes growth possible, Ephesians 4.15, 1 Peter 2.2, 2 Peter 3.18. The Process of Sanctification The process by which we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ is sanctification, in one sense, sanctification is a definitive, once-for-all act of God. Usually, though, sanctification is described as a process that accompanies the judicial act of justification and the life-transforming power of regeneration. Greg Bonson summarizes the relationship between justification and sanctification for us. Salvation continues beyond the point of justification into the process of sanctification, a process which begins with a definitive break with the bondage of sinful depravity and matures by progressively preparing the Christian to enjoy eternal life with God by the internal purifying of his moral condition. Because salvation involves accepting Christ as both one Savior and Lord, Acts 16.31, and because the reception of God's Son entails the reception of the Spirit of His Son as well, Romans 8.9-10, justification cannot be divorced from sanctification. There is no true justification without sanctification. Christ is our justification and our sanctification. To tear these two aspects of salvation asunder is to tear Christ asunder. 
If we are truly justified by faith, we will be perfected by grace through faith throughout our lives. This is part of James' point when he declares that faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James 2.17 Faith, if it is the true faith that justifies sinners, must express itself in works. B.B. Warfield clearly asserts the interrelatedness of justification and sanctification. In clear accord with the teaching of Scripture, Protestant theology has never imagined that the sinner could get along with justification alone. It has rather ever insisted that sanctification is so involved in justification that the justification cannot be real unless it is followed by sanctification. We must now ask a fundamental question. Does the justified, regenerated, and sanctified sinner affect his society? That is, does sanctification spill over into society as Christians work out the implications of their salvation? Are we responsible to reform our lives? Are we responsible to reform our families? Are we responsible to reform our children's education? Should we work to reform our church if it is not following its God-directed mission? As a Christian, should I work to reform a business that I have control over? What if I run for a political office? Should I work to bring righteousness to bear on all the issues of the day? If transformation takes place in the individual, the family, church, business, and the state, doesn't this mean that the world in some manner is being reformed? Where do we stop the process? Where do we say no to reformation? Where do we draw the line on sanctification's effect on our world? Can the Christian who has a biblical aversion to abortion sit by and allow the state to fund the murder of the unborn under a legal fiction? In effect, does the Bible-believing Christian say, Thus far and no farther with my sanctification. Does sanctification only have a personal effect? Theodore Rozak has described Christianity as socially irrelevant, even if privately engaging. We find instances in scripture where sanctification does spill over to affect others and the broader culture. The story of the Good Samaritan is ample evidence that this is true. Luke 10, 30-37 the self-righteous Levite passed on the other side, verse 32, while the Samaritan put his faith into action, verses 33 through 37. For the Levite, religion did nothing for the world. The benefit was purely for himself. We should remember at this point that abortion kills a human being. If helping to rescue the Samaritan traveler is the result of a justified and regenerated sinner manifesting his salvation and sanctification, then how can Christians stand by and allow abortion to go on without a protest? In another example, Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector, expressed his sanctification almost immediately after his conversion. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Luke 19.9 If injustice is operating in the world to hurt others, can we sit by and do nothing like the self-righteous Levite? Isaiah tells us, for example, that tampering with monetary commodities affects orphans and widows, those least able to care for themselves financially. Isaiah 1.21-23 Is economics neutral? Apparently not. Notice, too, that Israel, the people of God, were condemned because they did nothing. In Matthew 23, Jesus indicts the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, for using the law to protect their own interest while ignoring the needs of others. Marxists fill the gap. The Marxists in Central America have attacked the Christian gospel on this very point. Liberation theologians preach a gospel that has something to do with the here and now. Liberation theology parades as a biblical system that supposedly brings justice to the masses. 
we are told that only in Marxism, the heart of much liberation theology, is there a reliable struggle for justice. Marxists try to resolve the situation of exploitation and inequality. The new society they desire and the kingdom of God are the same, one priest said. A person only discovers the meaning of the kingdom of God by making this world a better place. In 1972, the bishops of two of Nicaragua's largest dioceses declared their support for a completely new order. The new order should include the preferential option for the poor and a planned economy for the benefit of humankind. This is very attractive to poor people, many of whom do not know where their next meal is coming from. The terminology of biblical Christianity is used to draw in the nominally religious and usually hopeless. But it's the promise for land, food, housing, and political power now that motivates many of them to embrace the liberationist gospel. The gospel of Christian fatalism must compete with the Marxist gospel of immediate social reform. Many of the evangelical groups doing missionary work in Latin America are millennialist, preaching Christ's imminent return to earth, and thus favor a passive response to social injustice. I've got nothing in the world but a mission in the next, announces a favorite song. What does this type of thinking do to multi-generational thinking? There is no long-range planning. Planning and building are irrelevant in a world of temporal insignificance. Western civilization was not built using the worldview of, I've got nothing in the world but a mission in the next. Rather, it was built with this in mind, I've got something in this world because I have a mission in the next. What does a next world-only gospel do for the impoverished? It throws them right into the arms of the Marxist. The Marxists stand by and offer wrong answers, but for the poor they seem better than what they have. The Christian comes with hope, but a hope that only has meaning when they die. This is not the Christian message. Eternal life begins now for the believer. The benefits of heaven are ours now. We live heavenly lives now. Colossians 3, 1-4 The anti-Christian mentality that pervades our world is content to have the church cloistered in its own world of cultural non-engagement. Christians are tolerated as long as they do not make waves, that is, as long as they do not engage the world for Christ. The time has come for Christians to think about what it will take to build a Christian civilization in the next 200 years. That's right, we must begin to think multi-generational. While the next election is important, the kingdom of God and its extension through the generations is much more important. Let's begin the building process now. Let's get our eyes out of the clouds and on the work at hand. Acts 1.11 does eschatology make a difference? There are a number of pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists who have a social conscience similar to that of Christian Reconstructionists. Believing in the imminent return of Jesus does not deter them from being socially responsible. One Assemblies of God's Evangelist writes, Premillenarians are some of the most active people in the kingdom of God here and now. Most premillenarians are so socially and politically active as any other sector of evangelical Christianity, regardless of eschatological views. I see my premillenarian brothers and sisters at the vanguard of world evangelism, drug rehabilitation, political activism, protest against social evils, feeding and clothing the poor, etc. Of course, as we've demonstrated throughout this book, this does not square with Mr. Hunt's views. First, Mr. Lewis states that the kingdom of God is here and now. Dave Hunt tells us that the kingdom will appear tangibly only in heaven. It will not even be manifested in the earthly millennium. 
Second, according to what we've read of Dave Hunt, Jimmy Swaggart, Hal Lindsey, and David Wilkerson, being concerned with such earthly things as political activism focuses the eyes of Christians on earthly things. Then there is a book with the following title, Christian Reconstruction from a Pre-Tribulational Perspective, by David Schnitger, a publication of the Southwest Radio Church of God. The author wants everything Reconstructionists are working for, but within the framework of a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial position. Schnitger criticizes those leaders who hold to the pre-tribulational rapture position and adopt an attitude of cultural pessimism. Gary North and other post-millennial Christian Reconstructionists label those who hold to the pre-tribulational rapture position pietist and cultural pessimist. One reason these criticisms are so painful is because I find them to be substantially true. Many in our camp have an all-pervasive negativism regarding the course of society and the impotence of God's people to do anything about it. They will heartily affirm that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, and that this must indeed be the terminal generation. Therefore, any attempt to influence society for Christ is ultimately hopeless. They adopt the pietistic platitude, You don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Many pessimistic pre-tribbers cling to the humanist version of religious freedom, namely Christian social and political impotence self-imposed as drowning men cling to a life preserver. Their attitude is, just give us the freedom to hand out tracts. Just a few more years and Jesus will come back to bail us out. Give us a tiny zone of autonomy from the state and we'll be satisfied. Just give us some slack in our chains. The Lure of Politics Of course, the most fundamental question is this. How can either of these men expect any long-term success in their efforts if they believe in the imminent return of Jesus? They might work at Reconstruction, but there will be no hope for success during the most trying times. If conditions get worse before they get better, will the belief in cultural transformation or imminent judgment win out? How will the pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist be able to convince others to join a long-term project of Christian Reconstruction in the light of Bible prophecy that they believe points to our days as being the last days. What will happen when success does not come quickly? Will there be disillusionment, discouragement, and retreat? Some of the most active activists have already dropped out of the battle. Constitutional attorney John Whitehead has noticed that those who once were the most committed are no longer around. The great majority of movements come and go, no matter how powerful. Some of the most powerful burn out the fastest. Almost all the activists I began working with are now gone. Some have had mental breakdowns. One is selling ads. One is making movies. Others are pretending to be good Christians by voting and going to church. Burned out. Whitehead points to establishment assimilation as the reason for activistic burnout. At first, activists fight against the system. But in time, they become part of the status quo. Among many Christian groups, politics has been suspect. Political finagling gave us abortion, tyrannical laws that threatened to wipe out the growing Christian school movement, and legislation that recognized homosexuality as a legitimate alternative lifestyle. Christians began to awaken in the mid-70s. They were tired of being kicked around. The future was at stake for them and their children. The year 1976 was the turning point. A supposed champion of Christian ideals came to the scene. Jimmy Carter ran as a non-establishment candidate for the presidency. Carter claimed to be born again. This was enough to bring Christians to the polls. Carter won, but his four years in Washington turned out to be a disaster for Christian ideals. He adopted the born-again image, but ignored the born-again Christians who helped put him into office. 
His presidency was one of the most liberal and anti-Christian on record. Little, if anything, was done to stop the slaughter of the unborn. He packed the courts with liberal judges, a place where real political battles are won and lost. As Carter's presidency drew to a close, disillusionment turned to anger. Carter was rejected for another self-avowed born-again president, Ronald Reagan. His presidency was reconfirmed in 1984 with a landslide victory over Walter Mondale, the last remnant of the Carter presidency. Some battles have been won under Reagan's presidency. A number of Christians secured cabinet posts, and others found their way into places of influence. But while we have made some progress, there is still disappointment. Abortion is still the law of the land. The growing deficit threatens to push our nation into bankruptcy. We should not forget that it was under the Reagan administration that churches were brought under the taxing structure of the social security system. Under the latest tax law, all children over five years of age will have to have a social security number in order for parents to claim them as exemptions on their 1040 forms. Many Christians feel that they have been used solely for political purposes, and they are right. There was the promise of change with little that actually did change. The established political order recognized these vocal Christian activists as a strong political force, but instead of changing the face of politics, the face of activism changed. Activists became respectful and compromised. What happened to the influential born-again movement of the 70s and 80s? There was an unhealthy reliance on short-term political solutions to our nation's problems. Politics was seen as the immediate savior. Activist lawyer John Whitehead again writes, The most alluring reason activist movements are absorbed by the establishment is immersion in politics, to the extent that politics becomes an all-consuming religion. This has essentially wiped out the leftist movements of the 60s, and it will all but destroy the Christian activism of the 80s. The Psychology of Pessimism Politics is the quick-fix approach to cultural transformation. The next presidential election will turn the tide. A change in the Supreme Court will bring our nation back to righteousness. If we could only get more conservatives elected to office, none of this will do it. Only a long-term effort to change all facets of society will bring about significant and lasting transformation. This means changing the hearts and minds of millions of people. All this takes time, time that is not on the side of the pre-tribulational pre-millennialists. There is a psychology to pessimism. A belief in impending judgment influences the development of a strategy for building. Where should our efforts go? If you have a vision for an earthly future that includes reconstruction, then your efforts will be multifaceted. While it will include politics, there will be more emphasis on building churches and schools and universities. Our children will be trained to be doctors and lawyers, as well as medical missionaries and engineers, two of the best ways to get into countries usually closed to missionaries. The design will be to reconstruct the world from the bottom up. All facets of life will come under the sway of the gospel and biblical law. The short-term solution will be to change things at the top and hope and pray that change will first come through the legislative process. While legislative change is certainly important, especially in the case of abortion, it will not be lasting if the people who put legislators into office do not hold biblical views. A new generation needs to be retaught the things of God. This will take time, more time than the present prophetic timetable will give it. We should also keep in mind that influence for change comes from influential professions. Christians have finally started to develop Christian schools. This is a sign of activism and obedience. But the greatest threat to the Christian school movement is the legal establishment, made up of lawyers and judges who hold a worldview in conflict with the Christian worldview. There is also a large lobbying group, 
the NEA that has a vested interest in seeing parent-funded education kept to a minimum. School systems also have a vested interest. Public school systems receive funds from various governmental jurisdictions to finance their schools. If there are fewer students, then there is less funding. Private educational institutions threaten the financial base of status education because a student in a private school means decreased tax dollars to the school system. Should Christians expect to have their views expressed in a fair and impartial way in newspapers, on radio, and on television, there are additional areas where Christians have little influence. It is time that Christians see every area of life as spiritual and ripe for reformation and reconstruction. You can't change just some things. Suppose a church sets up a Christian school and the state says that it must meet minimum requirements established by the legislature in conjunction with the educational establishment. So the church hires a lawyer to fight the requirements. He goes before a judge who was appointed by the state's liberal governor. He rules in favor of the state. Let's suppose you want to fight abortion. A group from your local church decides to picket your town's abortion mill. You're arrested for interfering with the traffic flow of a legitimate business. Again, you face lawyers and judges who are part of the governmental process. The solution? Christians must become lawyers and judges as well as legislators. But where will these Christians get their training? Most law schools are not very sympathetic to the Christian worldview. There are only a handful of good Christian colleges and even fewer Christian law schools. So another facet of our agenda is the building of Christian colleges, universities, and law schools. But all this takes time. Will our premillennial brethren give these needed areas of reconstruction the required time and attention? Are they willing to keep up the fight in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds? Will they trust God for success and not forfeit this world as prophetic speculators grow in their insistence that the end is near? We welcome all who join in the process of Christian reconstruction. God will not demand anything less, even if he returns by the time you finish reading this. Conclusion The devil wants us to remain passive in the face of hostile opposition to the Christian faith. And when we do get involved, he directs us to follow only defensive measures. The devil isn't too concerned if we battle humanism. He knows that in time, we'll go home. For most Christians, there's no long-term strategy to implement. What angers, frustrates, and motivates the devil is when we start building to supplant humanism. When we start building schools, the devil-inspired humanists who have succeeded in claiming the seats of judicial power swoop down on us to try to shut us down. You see, as long as Christians have remained in their churches, they have been free to criticize the prevailing humanistic worldview. The humanists have now seen some of their guarded turf taken over by Christians who maintain that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. A growing number of Christians have taken the cultural implications of this truth very seriously. As fellow heirs with Christ, Christians are now exercising dominion in his name and under his authority, Romans 8:17. But the devil has not quit. His goal is to get Christians to believe the lie that they should keep their religion private, that there's no hope in changing the world. Preachers teach it, and millions of Christians believe it. As we near the close of the 20th century, we see that the humanist and apocalyptic Christians are saying the same thing for different reasons, but with the same results. It is time that both extremes were rejected.